Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Curiosalist podcast. I'm Harry Lidgley, and I'm joined, as ever, by Will Randall. Hello, everyone. It's been a little while, mainly because I've been busy cycling long distances. Quite long. But that's all over, and now I have happily returned home to sit in my armchair and read about classics again. Thank God. And we thought we'd shake up the system a little bit and start a new series. So welcome to series two, which we have arbitrarily decided to start. Series two is going to be centred around a main theme of women in antiquity. I thought that would be an interesting topic because it came up very briefly in my third year course at uni and seemed interesting because women don't get a huge amount of attention, mainly because the sources are almost always written by men and have relatively limited interest in women because they were excluded from politics, essentially, which was often a main feature in antiquity. There's plenty of curiosus possibility. Exactly. So most women are curiosus. I'm sure most listeners could probably name Boudicca and Cleopatra, on whom there will be later episodes in the series. But for now we're going to focus on some of the other characters that you probably haven't heard of. The four that we are going to discuss are quite unusual, essentially because they're known about. Most women didn't really have any opportunity to flourish beyond the expected uh, routine based in, in domestic settings. So these women are quite unusual uh, because we actually know about them as individuals. Most women in general had very few rights. They were very limited in their education, their mobility, and basically anything that interfered with domestic and childbearing responsibilities. And the few exceptions were generally restricted to the nobility. Most women were married off to an older husband in an arranged marriage, uh, often not even meeting their husband until that match had been set up. And their virginity and fidelity were very important requirements, uh, which is why they were often married off so young. So, in general, women didn't have a brilliant time of it. And that makes the women that we're about to discuss all the more remarkable, I suppose, because in a system where they were not designed to flourish, these women managed to carve for themselves some influence, some power, which makes them pretty kick-ass, in my view. Pretty curiosus. Curiosus, indeed, yes. Yeah. So we're going to kick off the series with a, a first cohort, in case you hadn't realised yet. So the two of us will each be presenting two famous women from antiquity, one Greek, one Roman each. You can, you can see which ones we pick as we, as we get there. We're going to go in chronological order. So Lidge will start. Um, so Lidge, who's, who's first up on the list? So I'm, I'm going to kick us off with a woman called Aspasia. Now, what do you know about her? I know close to nothing. I know she was... Was she married to Pericles, or was she just a... a well, e- even cons- that is a little bit hazy. Yeah. This, is, this is the thing, what I mean about, like, the sources don't take a vast amount of interest in women, particularly in Greece. I think in Rome they were afforded slightly more freedom, but in I think Greece was even more conservative. And... Yeah, so we just don't really know many details for certain about this Aspasia. However, the ancient historian Madeline Henry writes of her that Aspasia of Miletus, a key figure in the intellectual history of 5th century Athens, is without question the most important woman of that era. Which is probably fair, because I think she's just about the only woman... Yeah, the composition's not that ...of that era that I could name. But yes, the precise details of her life are generally uncertain, although it's certainly clear from the bits we can patch together that she was very unusual. Thucydides puts in the mouth of Pericles this speech, uh, the funeral oration, quite a famous passage in Thucydides, Uh, but in it he has Pericles say that the greatest glory of a woman is to be least talked about by men, whether they are praising you or criticising you. Yeah. 
which gives you a flavour of the expectations of a woman's role, largely domestic, out of public life. Aspasia, on the contrary, was very much talked about, um, and one of few women who in her lifetime contradicted that statement of Pericles. She was born in Miletus, which is on the Turkish west coast, and it's probably actually her foreignness that afforded her a, a degree of independence, because the Athenian citizenship was so highly prized, so highly valued, that male Athenian citizens really made an effort to protect their women, sort of protect their fidelity. Um, so is she like a metic? Is that the term? She is a metic, yeah. yes. There's quite a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what the metic population was exactly, but a significant number yeah. of these foreigners who lived in Athens... And when you say foreign, foreign it includes Greeks. It's just yes, it's just not anyone Athenian. from not Athens. Yeah, but they they weren't allowed to own land in Attica, the the region that Athens was in, which was one of the key things that set them apart from citizenship. And then, of course, not being able to participate in the democracy. But little was really known about her family background, except that her father was a guy called Axiochus. It's unclear exactly how she came to be in Athens, but the possible theory is that Alcibiades, who is the... What a boy. Well, the Alcibiades, the grandfather of the Alcibiades. Oh, okay. So, Grandpa Alcibiades was exiled to Miletus in 460, uh, and then he married a daughter of Axiochus, who was Aspasia's sister. And then supposedly Aspasia followed them back to Athens after his ostracism exile period was up. And, well, what did she get up to in Athens? Various rumours that she had a bunch of affairs with philosophers and generals. I think most of the negative stuff about her is probably designed to be slander against Pericles, which is possibly why we gather that she might have been a Hetaira, who was... How best to describe a Hetaira? They are sort of... yeah. Yeah... They're more respected than prostitutes. They're sort of living companions who were quite classy. They were high-class entertainers who were educated. Es- escorts, basically. Something like that. And they'd, um, they'd be present at parties and things, and they'd be allowed to discourse on philosophy and literature and blah-de-blah, blah, whatever. So it's possible that that's what she did uh, in Athens. Other rumours that she was a brothel keeper... But again, that's probably intended as slander against Pericles by some of his political opponents. She would have been unable to marry Pericles, though, legitimately. And would have been un- unable to have legitimate citizen children with him because she was emetic. Uh, because Pericles' citizenship law in 451 BC meant that you could only be a citizen if both your father and your mother were Athenian citizens. It's quite stingy. It is. But they they were very yeah. protective of their citizenship. Well, yeah. But it's also like slightly bizarre and confusing because women weren't properly citizens, but you also had to be the right sort of woman to have a citizen son. It's, it's a bit unclear. But either way, yeah. the son that she had with Pericles, if indeed it was her that had this son with Pericles, could not have been a legitimate citizen. So Aspasia was basically just a bit of a brain box. She was really respected and celebrated in Athens for her wisdom and her knowledge of literature and philosophy. Uh, So Plutarch writes that Socrates would often come round with some of his chums purely to listen to Aspasia discourse on different topics. And it's even possible that Aspasia was Socrates' teacher, Hmm. which is quite cool. Well, so remind me when she was born and when, like. Well, it's not entirely clear. Um, yeah. But she was probably in Athens from about 450 BC, and she probably oh, died sometime around the trial of Socrates, so 399. So pretty. They must be similar age. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was also a teacher of rhetoric, which is surprising given that only males as citizens who would speak in the democratic assembly. Only they really needed to know about oratory and and public speaking, which, again, marks her out as a bit unusual. She appears in a bunch of philosophical works, 
by Plato, Xenophon, Aeschines, Socraticus, and Antisthenes, usually appearing as someone that Socrates recommends to other people as a particularly good teacher. So she's really um, mucking up this whole thing of Pericles about not being discussed, yeah. whether for good or bad. She possibly even wielded a bit of political clout. She was supposedly responsible for the Samian War in 440, because, to cut a long story short, Samos was at war with Miletus over another settlement, and Miletus came to Athens to ask for help, and because Aspasia was from Miletus, she basically convinced Pericles to get them involved. Okay. Possibly. And then there's also the suggestion that she was actually responsible for the Peloponnesian War itself. Oh, that's surely a bit far-fetched. Which is, uh, yes, it's, it's definitely far-fetched. It appears in one of the comedies by Aristophanes, the Acarnians, the basically, that a couple of the courtesans from her, her brothel had been stolen by the Megarians. So then they, in turn, stole a couple of heirs, and then, and the quote goes, and so for three gay women, Greece is set ablaze. So it's it's quite Helen and Paris-esque, starting yeah. the Trojan War, just stealing women, and uh, all hell breaks loose. It's unlikely that uh, Aspasia actually had enough influence to get Pericles to kick off the Peloponnesian War, likely just playing on the fact that Aspasia had some degree of influence over Pericles. But there we go. She was so influential, in fact, that after Pericles died... So he died of the plague in 429. Yeah. After Pericles died, she uh, moved in with this chap called Lysicles, who was a sheep dealer, a man of low birth and nature. And yet he came to be the first man at Athens just by virtue of living with her, because she was so... Sorry, but that's not strictly true, is it? Well, I mean... I- I've in... never heard of him. Yeah, I've never heard of Lysicles yeah. before either, but I think it just goes to show that such was yeah. her... Uh, She's just a celebrity. She's she's the Kim Kardashian of her day. Absolutely. So who who she shacked up with this time? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's unclear when she died exactly, and if she was alive when her son Pericles the Younger was executed. Uh, it's all a bit hazy, really. But I just thought she was pretty remarkable because she possibly had some political influence, admittedly through a male relation of hers, but still she possibly had some ambition to shape the course of Athenian foreign policy, but she was certainly a celebrated philosopher and, and speaker and intellectual, really, uh, which is unusual because women had such limited access to proper education. Well, in, especially in Athens, too. Yeah. Athens, it goes, yeah, it's, it's in worse Sparta, than Sparta. had a bit more... Yeah, because they were allowed to own land in Sparta, weren't they? Yes, they were. And in fact, um, Spartan women, apparently, during the 4th century BC owned between 60 and 70% of Spartan land. Yeah. Because the men were off fighting all the time, so it was expected of women to run the estates. So in Sparta, they had a lot more freedom, comparatively. They still weren't allowed to participate in politics, but they Mm -hmm. could run businesses and wander around as they pleased, really. But no such joy for most Athenian women, which marks Aspasia out in particular. There was actually another Aspasia... Who How are you? <laughs> this is your second. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do yeah. love. Uh... It wouldn't be an episode without you bringing up a second something. Of course. So the other Aspasia, who is also from Athens, and also okay. defied the uh, the limitations on education and celebrity, uh, she was called Aspasia the physician. She was from Athens in the fourth century AD, so quite a lot later on. But she was apparently a really good physician, concentrated on obstetrics and gynaecology and uh, introduced a bunch of surgical techniques that are actually... I don't know exactly what the techniques were, but apparently a lot of them are very similar to what is used today. Mm. So she was clearly ahead of her time. And one of these was the method for moving a breech baby, so a baby where its feet are coming out first rather yeah. than the head. Apparently she came up mm. with some technique to twirl them round. Oh, really? So oh, wow. Nice work, Aspasia. Yeah. So there we go, those are my Aspasias. Some cool women, and uh, continuing on the Greek, well, close enough to Greek, Yeah. who have we got? I'm going to talk about Olympias, who was the mother of Alexander the Great. So we do know a little bit about her, not necessarily because of what she did, but um, that's obviously because of, because of Alexander and Philip. But um, she, I think she, she earns her, her repute and fame for her own actions alone. Mm. So 
just as as some brief context, born in three seventy five BC, so this is like what a hundred years after after Aspasia, and then Roughly, dies in three one six. Yeah, so kind of just the the next century. She came from well, she's the eldest daughter of the king of Epirus, which is kind of Greek state in, in modern day Albania, but it was very much a Greek kingdom, and um, yeah, and to secure an alliance with the king of Macedon, who was Alexander's dad, obviously, Philip II. She was betrothed to Philip, and Philip had seven wives over the course oh, of his just, just life. Just a few, then. Yeah, just, just a couple. Were, were they in succession, or at the same time? Uh, so, yeah, simultaneous. I think one or two of the early ones died before the very last where, one came where along. Where does uh, Olympias fit into the So the she's, she's bang in the middle, so I think she's number four. Oh, right. Is she generally acknowledged to be sort of the chief wife well that's the thing like none of them i mean i did some research on kind of i couldn't name any of the other ones yeah i mean so the only other one that's important is this this one called cleopatra at the very end which i'll talk about but yeah there wasn't really such thing as like so the pharaohs in egypt had recognized chief wives but they also had other mistresses who were actual wives but um from what i seem to have gathered they're all pretty much on equal footing so that gives a lot of room for political machinations yeah and all more important to pop out a son first you know in advance of all your rival wives Mm. so she gave birth to alexander uh she also gave birth to a daughter called cleopatra too um who's alexander's sister but alexander was basically the first son and he was kind of the i guess you say the heir designate there was no there's no real designation of you know the heir apparent in the same way that like right now we have Charles Wright as the Prince of Wales, but um, Alexander was very much just the presumed heir, but it wasn't official and guaranteed. Mm. You know, it's not it's not purely by primogeniture, and Macedonia has a a history of a lot of assassinations on kings and heirs. You know, it's it gets pretty pretty rowdy. It's just too confusing because they have too many wives. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's not as bad as the Judeo Claudian family tree, but it it does make it a bit complicated. But the good thing is, you know, if if you think Olympias was fourth and she was the first one to produce a son, so there weren't actually many, many sons. Yeah. Um, okay. There were a couple. So the most famous one also from another wife is Philip Aradeus, the fourth. Mm. No, the third, rather. But he was, um, well, mentally a bit slow. Yeah, he was basically allowed to live once Alexander came to power. Um, because he was not seen as a threat, because they thought, oh, you know, he was unsuitable to rule. Yeah, he no, no yeah. one's going to possibly think that oh, we can support this guy in a bid to get the throne. So he was kind of left alone. But yeah, so so obviously there's there was a lot of room for tension and and political infighting in in the kingdom. But if we if we if we quickly go back, so with her marriage, Plutarch is one of our best sources, and he. He says that the night before the consummation of their marriage, Olympias dreamed the thunderbolt fell upon her womb and a great fire was kindled. Ooh. I mean, some people think this is... So, so Olympias had this theory that Alexander was not Philip's son, but rather Zeus visited her. Well, he always dream. claimed to be the yeah. son of Zeus, didn't he? Exactly. So um, oh, I think this is... Didn't realise well, that stemmed probably, from her. Yeah, it's probably a story, but she, she does instil this idea of destiny in Alexander from a very young age. That's a great way to big up your son. Yeah, uh, she, she, she was really gunning for him to, to be the big dog. Yeah. And it's why later on, which I'll, I'll touch, she is a, a big suspect in Philip's eventual assassination, but I'll come to the, the theories later. But yeah, if you watch the film Alexander, which I did watch actually the other day, it's pretty quite good, long, but, but pretty good, yeah. She's played by Angelina Jolie, but she do get this idea that she's kind of focused on Alexander and doesn't trust Philip at all because there's no real certainty about whether Alexander's going to be the successor. Um, so she kind of tries to say, oh, you're actually the son of Zeus. You're more important than you think you are. And obviously he does go on to be pretty important. So she, she did her job on that front. This all kind of culminates, this what I'm talking about now, in Philip's death. Now, Philip gets assassinated in 336 BC. And the background to this is he's married, recently married, the niece of a Macedonian noble called Atlas, uh, this this girl called Cleopatra, and Atlas at a at a party raises a toast as it's in the film and says, you know, we want a true-born Macedonian heir, because obviously 
Olympias is from Epirus, so it's not a, not a pure. Yeah, I think that Cleopatra Macedonian. was the only Macedonian wife of Philip. Yeah. Is that right? So, um, yeah, so yeah, they he was kind of Atlas, obviously trying to throw his weight around. Thought, oh well, this is this is my chance to have a real Macedonian heir who's related to me, and um, this is going to push my agenda forward. And Philip doesn't stick up for Alexander, and Olympias doesn't take it well. I think it's fair to say. And she actually flees to back home and takes Alexander with her. So there's a bit of a bit of a hoo-ha and you know, the succession's thrown up in arms. But eventually they kind of reconcile and, and come back. But soon after Philip Philip gets it. So we we genuinely have no idea really who was behind it. So we know he was killed by a guy called Pausanias, who was a Macedonian and the sources are all a bit vague, so most say that he was a, a former lover of Philip's, and some just simply say he was a bit jealous, which I think is a bit much. Seems quite extreme. It's, it's not really the ground. Yeah, it's not really the grounds. If you, if you break up with someone, to then just go and murder <laughs> them, um, it seems a bit unjustified. And it's a shame because um, immediately after Pausanias had knifed Philip and runs off, he he trips up and the the bodyguards of Philip chase him down, and in their rage. They murder him too, rather than think to be like, oh, we can ask who was behind this plot. So nice. we generally we generally don't know. But the I think the main theory that's posited is quite brutal. So supposedly this guy Atlas, whose niece had recently married Philip, he had orchestrated a gang rape on this guy, and Philip had kind of refused to stand up for him because he was now best mates with Atlas and said, I'll get over it. Um, so in his fury and kind of trying to get revenge, decided to, to murder Philip, which is supposedly the best theory we have on offer, but it's not particularly plausible, which leads to the speculation that our Olympias may or may not have been involved. And the simple reason is because there are so many wives. She's recently had to take the slight of Philip not, not acknowledging Alexander as the heir apparent. So she, she there's a, it's unlikely she would have actually orchestrated the plot herself but there's a high chance that she was privy to it and may well have encouraged this Pausanias dude to go ahead and some say that was well, a bit more far-fetched that if if she was behind it then surely Alexander must have known because she must have been like oh get ready because your time's approaching but I don't, I don't know that's a big accusation to throw around if you yeah know, I don't know whether I'm biased I'm biased to Alexander, so I feel like he wouldn't be. But um, <laughs> perhaps someone with a more a more of a neutral view might think that's more credible than it than I believe it to be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's she's certainly not afraid to wield political influence as the wife of the king. So it's all a bit messy before Alexander becomes king because of this because of the polygamy that's practiced in Macedonia, and then surprisingly. The well, maybe not surprisingly actually, but the period when Alexander is king, which is actually quite quiet, because Alexander's obviously busy doing his thing, going around conquering, conquering, conquering the, the whole world. world. <laughs> yeah, she, she's she just chills basically back in Maston. Uh, Alexander left this dude, this old guy called Antipater, just as regent, to mind mind the kingdom, and she's there. And there's a bit of argy bargy between them because she's she thinks, oh, you know, I'm. I'm mother of the king. Surely I should have more influence than this guy Antipater, who's just, just a mere general. But supposedly, I think Alexander's a bit like, "Oh, mum, stop embarrassing me. Come on, just, just let me do my thing." <laughs> and they frequently exchange letters. But I think on the whole, they maintain a, a cordial relationship. That's what most of her, most people seem to think. Right. And she returned to Epirus briefly during Alexander's campaigns to serve as regent for her cousin because her brother. Alexander the first of Epirus, um, who became king of Epirus, died prematurely in southern Italy. So she had to kind of go and stabilise that. But then soon enough, she came back to Maston because it was a bit more important. She she's got contacts all over all over the Greek world. Yeah, yeah. I think obviously the 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 reason is you know she's born into royalty and everything, but um, she certainly she's not someone to sit back and just you know. It's probably. I mean, I wonder how much of it is because, because it's a polygamous society. She has to, really has to fight for her corner. Yeah, perhaps if if she wasn't, she might be more willing to, 
it would be more relaxing and more of a free ride but because it's so fierce the kind of the spirit within her is called to action mm-hmm. you might say but once alexander dies sadly in 323 right. bc that's not the end of her so she actually i think this does reveal that she's a pretty potent force i mean it spoils this period of chaos called the wars of the deer Doki, which i think is fascinating i'd highly recommend <laughs> reading about but there's a good dissertation out there i believe isn't there there is there is i'd forward to anyone who, who <laughs> wants to read it but yeah she she obviously because alexander's this borderline mythic well not at the time but you know he's praised as being a god already um so obviously she's gonna she's gonna be acknowledged as being important because he's got a a special place in Mm. every macedonian's heart and she tries to wield as much influence as possible so what she does first of all alexander well supposedly appoints this dude called perdicas as regent of his global empire and Olympias offers her daughter, Alexander's sister Cleopatra, in marriage to Perdiccas, which angered Antipater, the, the guy I was saying who had spent the rest of Alexander's campaigns at home in Macedon with Olympias, because he was supposed to be allying himself through marriage with Perdiccas. So Perdiccas took a bit of a gamble, but not long after that, Perdiccas kind of, he copped it in Egypt and got betrayed by his own men after a campaign that went a bit south. And... Essentially, this guy called Cassander crops up, who... <laughs> it's such a confusing period, isn't it? Just so many names bandying around. Yeah, it's very hard to try and explain this in a clear fashion. But Antipater, this guy who was regent while Olympias was also chilling in, in Maston, he dies four years after Alexander in 319, I think it is. And everyone kind of expects that he's going to name as successor to the regency his son Cassander but he he pulls a funny and he just names this bloke called Polyperchon says no you can you can take the reins and everyone even Polyperchon's a bit like whoa I didn't really didn't really ask for this and Cassander is obviously fuming and yeah Polyperchon is made regent but Cassander being furious kind of storms into Maston takes it over so Olympias thinks oh well this isn't great I don't want I don't want Cassander trying to rule Maston so she actually allies with it's this kind of three-way alliance with Polyperchon who's supposedly the legitimate regent of Maston herself and then this guy Eumenes who's another fascinating figure but yeah that was kind of the beginning of the end for Olympias because she lost her support with the Eumenes. Polyperchon also eventually just decides to call it even Stevens with Cassander and agrees to work with him but relinquishes title as uh, regent and just chills as a, a you know an administrator in Greece which kind of yeah it, it's the beginning of the end for for Olympias mm. but it wasn't before she managed to defeat well she caused some carnage let's say so in the aftermath of Alexander's death the soldiers proclaimed his unborn son and his brother this mentally defective guy called Philip Aradeus as co-kings and this Aradeus guy marries a girl called um, Eurydice. And she's another woman who tries to throw her weight around. But Olympias defeats her in battle. And so brutal is her kind of vendetta against this rival potential queen that she captures her. She gives her the option of a rope, a dagger, and like a, a vial of poison. And, and just leave it to her. And yeah, and then she, the girl chooses to hang herself. But that's not that's not the worst. So before her feud with Cassander is over, what she does is I don't know to what extent this is exaggerated. So while Cassander's away, she kind of takes back the Macedonian capital and she proceeds to literally massacre over a hundred of Cassander's best mates and family. That um <laughs> which is pretty astonishing because you think, Oh, how mu- how many friends and family can you but I think she literally on a like a you know extreme level, searches out anyone who has any ties to Cassandra and exterminates them. She's serious business. Don't want to mess with her. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say she's crazy, but she, yeah, she's she's a bit psycho. Slightly. Yeah, and then she kind of gets her comeuppance because Cassandra, unsurprisingly, is pretty pretty cheesed off about this, and he blockades her in the capital of Pydna. Uh, not in the capital, rather, just in a, in a place called Pydna. And um, 
Well, he offers them terms and says that he'll spare Olympias' life, but then he just goes back on it and, and kills her <laughs> kills her anyway. Supposedly, he ordered his soldiers to kill her, but they refused because she's the mum of Alexander the Great. So they're like, nah, we don't want to do this. So what what he does is he gets the um, families of... The, the, the remaining survivors of the people she didn't manage to kill, of those 100 friends and close family, and they stone her to death um, out of pure pure vengeance. So mm-hmm. she meets a pretty brutal end. Whether it's deserved and she gets a comeuppance, I'm not going to pass judgment. It's a it's a doggy dog world. But, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of symptomatic of the Macedonian factionalism and infighting in general. It's It's pretty brutal. And then... Cassander himself, he spared Roxanne, Alexander's wife, and his what was his unborn son, Alexander the Fourth. But then a couple of years later, decides to have them dispatched to, after they'd spent a couple of years under house arrest. So with that, the house of Alexander was extinguished. Very sadly, literally within what less than twenty years of his death, his the house of um, Philip Alexander is gone, mm. which is a shame, because obviously, I mean, the difference is when you look at Rome. And Caesar, there's this whole obsession with the family tree and appointing people as Caesar and everything, continuing the bloodline. But um, Alexander, it's just... Doesn't happen. 20 years. 20 years, it's done. And you might say, well, was Olympias's desire for, for vengeance and insecurity about her own position perhaps responsible? But I think it's, it's more symptomatic of Macedonian politics in general, to be honest. I don't think the atrocities she committed were particularly... Well, they didn't stand out extremely so in comparison with everything else that was going on at the time. But yeah, she was a real a real player in in the the game of thrones that was ancient Maston. So it seems. So I've got I've got a bit of a soft spot for her. She seems like a pretty headstrong woman who could hold her own in Absolutely. the world of politics. So yeah, I think she 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 deserves a mention. Yeah, an interesting figure for sure. And I'll continue with a a figure who is also relatively similar in the fact that she was basically doing as much as she could to further the prospects of her children and that is the elder Agrippina whose full name is Vipsania Agrippina. She was a member of the Julio-Claudian imperial household so the family of Augustus the first Roman emperor. The family tree is excruciatingly impenetrable um I spent a well, long time. That's putting it lightly. <laughs> I spent a long time just looking at it and being confused. Partly because they all seem to intermarry and then interremarry, but also yeah. because they all have the same name, basically. Well, and there's the adoptions. Yes, um, and it, yeah, it's just it's, chaos. It's a mess. So this is Vipsania Agrippina, the daughter of Marcus Agrippa, who was Augustus's right hand man, and Augustus's daughter Julia. She became the wife of Germanicus, who was a bit of a legend, kicking around in Germany. And she bore nine children with him, which is a very impressive tally, of whom six survived infancy, which is not a bad ratio for the Roman world. She is not to be confused with one of the many other Vipsania Agrippinas. (laughs) Um, I spent quite a bit of time getting confused. Agrippa had five daughters called Vipsania, one of whom is more conveniently known as the younger Julia. But yeah, there are all these Vipsania Agrippinas kicking around, so it's terribly confusing. But yes, the one we're looking at is a direct descendant of Augustus, which makes her quite important. So on that basis, she was part of the imperial household. And recognising that women could not hold any political office, she understood, like Augustus's wife Livia, that she could best wield her influence and power through promoting her children, essentially, which is what she was busy setting about doing. However, off her own bat, so without even having to rely on influential male children, she was still a bit of a legend. She accompanied Germanicus everywhere, out on campaigns and things, and was pretty active. She 
according to Tacitus at least, actually had quite a significant role in quelling the mutiny among the Rhine legions following Augustus's death. Germanicus had a bit of a tricky time trying to deal with that, and the emperor who succeeded from Augustus, called Tiberius, also seemed to struggle quite a lot to deal with it. But Agrippina basically won over the sympathy of the troops. Did she, like, parade Caligula? She did, yeah. So this is... um, She's the mother of Caligula, and he had basically become, I think Tacitus calls it something like the foster son of the legions. He was a, a sort of mascot for the legions. Yeah. And he would always go around parading, dressed up in his soldier's uniform with little boots. So Roman boots were called Caligae, but because his were little boots, they were the diminutive Caligulae, which is where he got his name. Yeah, so the the, the combo of Caligula and Agrippina won over the hearts of the legions, and uh, she managed to stop that. But she also kept a pretty cool head in some fairly challenging circumstances. So when Germanicus was out busy fighting with Arminius of uh, Teutoburg fame, yeah. he was still kicking around, causing problems for Rome. So Germanicus went out to fight a bunch of fairly indecisive battles with him. But Tacitus writes that meanwhile there had spread a report of the armies being surrounded and that the Gallii were the target of a ferocious column of Germans. And had Agrippina not prevented the dismantling of a bridge installed over the Rhine, there were those who, because of their alarm, would have dared that outrage. As it was, a female of mighty spirit assumed during those days the responsibilities of a leader and distributed clothing and dressings to the soldiers according to each man's need or injuries. And yet she stood on this bridge, stopped the soldiers dismantling it, and welcomed the chaps home. So she kept a cool head when basically all the men around her were panicking and uh, potentially saved a lot of lives. So good work there, Agrippina. She's chill. Yeah. Unfortunately, Germanicus died a bit later on, which is probably one of the biggest heartbreaks of Roman history. (laughs) Because he seemed like a really good guy. Uh, And he was probably poisoned by the governor of Syria, Piso, and possibly on the orders of the emperor Tiberius. Agrippina and Germanicus had basically been the most popular couple in the Roman Empire. Once Germanicus had died, it was up to Agrippina to secure the position of the House of Germanicus. And she did a pretty good job of fighting for their corner, but enter the pesky Sejanus. Oh, a little slimy rat. He was the slimiest rat to ever crawl around Rome's sewers. Uh, he was the chief destabiliser of Roman politics yeah. during the reign of Tiberius. He played a very clever game of pitching the Emperor Tiberius against Agrippina and convinced both of them that the other was trying to eradicate the other. And the way he managed this was by convincing Tiberius that Agrippina was becoming too powerful, which she might have been to be fair. A historian called Richard Bauman writes that if any woman was a politician in her own right, it was Agrippina the Elder. She was the spearhead of the anti-Sejanus faction in Rome, which was quite a remarkable thing to be doing as a woman. Yeah. It's unlikely that she was actually the head of any formal faction, and it's probably the case that Sejanus was exaggerating her degree of political sway so that he could exploit Tiberius's publicly acknowledged dislike of the House of Germanicus to make him paranoid about the prospect of a civil war and that Agrippina would be personally usurping his position. But it's, yeah, it's also very likely that she was going a long way to secure and promote the careers of her children and that side of the family. Because Sejanus just tear it apart. Yeah, Sejanus, yeah. he, he did very well, to be fair, to just rip everything apart. So, yeah, he's, he's basically Littlefinger. If any of you have watched Game of Thrones, he yeah. is Littlefinger in a nutshell. Scheming yeah. and just trying to engineer a position of power for himself. His downfall, I think, came about when he just went a bit too far. He tried to marry into the family, yeah. and then it eventually became clear to Tiberius, who at this point had retired from public life onto the island of Capri, eventually became clear to him that Sejanus was getting dangerously powerful. 
And uh, yeah, so part of that had been dismantling the House of Germanicus, which is really annoying because Agrippina was pretty awesome. Well, she did get her son to succeed, though. She did, although not the one she was hoping. Because well, none of us were really rooting for Caligula. No, although we do have hindsight. Um, but but Caligula was the youngest son, and Agrippina had been promoting the prospects of her eldest son Nero, not the same Nero that yeah. turned up later, and then also Drusus. But by the time that Sejanus had been dealt with, the damage had been done. So Tiberius was too suspicious of Agrippina's personal ambitions and those of her children. And so in AD 29, Agrippina was exiled to an island called Pandateria. And her eldest son, Nero, was also exiled to a different island. Drusus became imprisoned in the dungeons of the Imperial Palace. And they all died within a couple of years. Irreparable damage to the House of Germanicus. Yeah. Uh, But yes, you're right, Gaius, uh, or Caligula, his, his real name is Gaius, he ended up emperor. And once he was emperor, he retrieved the ashes of his mother, Agrippina, placed them in the mausoleum of Augustus, and the funerary urn actually still survives. Agrippina's funerary urn, okay. which is kind of... Is cool. it in the mausoleum? I don't know if it's still in the mausoleum. I imagine it's been pilfered by the British Museum yeah. or something. Classic. So a bit, of a, a bit of a sad demise to someone who was so ambitious and brave and clearly very capable. Tacitus describes her as volatile, with an untamed spirit, and also that she was impatient of equality and greedy for mastery. So he was probably slightly dubious of her mm. ambitions and probably didn't approve of the fact that a woman was being quite so successful in public, which, to a degree, got her in trouble as well, because she would just argue with Tiberius and dig herself a bit of a hole. But she did a great job of kicking up a fuss and promoting the legacy of her husband, her own ambitions. Yeah, at least she ended up with a son on the throne. So she got what she wanted, I suppose. She did, even if it wasn't the right one. Yeah, really not the right one. But hey-ho. Getting sent to Ireland seems to have been a bit of a theme for the Julio-Claudian women. Yeah, it's it's Octavia, Julia, It's It's a slightly strange tradition. The official term for that is relegation. It was uh, largely applied to people of the upper classes. People of the lower classes, had they committed similar crimes, this was usually adultery, might have gone to prison or even been killed. But for the upper classes, it would be a more lenient punishment, so they'd just get sent to an island. Which, on the face of it, doesn't sound too bad, but I think they had a pretty awful time because there are reports of starvation. Basically self-isolation for years rather than two weeks. Yeah pretty grim really and you don't have a mobile phone so yeah (laughs) not as fun stuck on a little island and of course i couldn't complete my section without uh mentioning some other agrippinas well there's plenty to choose from yeah i mean even i know yeah there are a lot of agrippinas from the roman imperial family because well a lot of them stemmed from marcus agrippa but it was clearly quite a cool name you know associated with powerful women agrippina the younger who was this Agrippina's daughter. Yeah, she's the most famous, surely. She did a lot of meddling around in politics as well, uh, especially in connection with her son Nero. I was surprised to see that the name Agrippina, though, has survived all the way down through the centuries. It's not a typical name that... Well, I wouldn't think of naming my daughter Agrippina. However... What, as in... In what languages, though? Well, any language, really. Which is it... For example, Agrippina de la Cruz was a Filipino <laughs> hurdler at the 1988 Summer Olympics. Wow, okay. Like a Filipino, that seems slightly random well, to be called Agrippina, does it? I mean, the Philippines was a former Spanish colony, so mm. romance languages and all that. I don't know. I so. But yeah, still, still. I mean, you wouldn't really expect many Italians to be called, or Spaniards to be called Agrippina, so... Certainly not many Filipinos. Maybe, maybe her dad her dad was a big classicist and took a... Took yeah, a maybe. To, but it's cool that Agrippina, Agrippina competed in the Summer Olympics, so... Yeah. That's a good one. There's also Agrippina Fedorovna Chelyadina, that catchy name. <laughs> From where? Who was the royal governess of Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar of Russia. Okay. Which is kind of cool. As in his wife, or what, what is... Um, I don't think it's, it's a... like an official wife, a sort of mistress-type thing. Okay. 
But she was implicated in the death and suspected poisoning of the Tsarina, so she was forced mm. to become a nun. Another inglorious end for another Agrippina. Yeah, another Not that being a nun's too, too bad. Yeah. I'd rather have to become a nun than get sent to an island and starve to death. Yeah, I think it's it's not, not so bad, all things considered. Especially when Ivan the Terrible's kind of lying around, he could devise a lot worse punishments, I'm sure. Absolutely. Right, let's finish off with... A certain Zenobia. Zenobia. Which is probably the best name that can be yeah. given to a girl, I think. It is pretty cool, and it is also in circulation still. Is it? I will touch on, I will touch on later. Nice. Yeah. So, Roman, so she born in, well, we think 240 AD, dies in around about like 274. So she only had like three or four decades, but short but sweet. Achieved a lot in that time, didn't she? Yeah, so this is this is in the backdrop of the, the, the crisis of the third century, which is, well, it's, it, we, uh, I think there's been a lot of messes that we've discussed already, but this is probably the one that takes the cake. The empire teetering right on the edge. Yeah. Basically, there's a, there's a new emperor every year that, you know, civil war, uninterrupted. But then in this period, this dude called Aurelian comes along and just saves the world. But one of his prime enemies is Zenobia. So Zenobia married this guy called Odinathus, um when she was only 14 years old, who was this, this guy who was king of the city of Palmyra, which is in modern day Syria. Um, so this is in like the east of the Roman Empire. He was a pretty cool dude. I think it's the Emperor Valerian had managed to. I mean, it all went horribly wrong. He managed to get himself captured by the by the Sassanids to the east, and they just kept him in a dungeon. Used him as a footstool, I think. Yeah, li- literally humiliating. And this guy Odinathus launches a kind of campaign in retribution and does pretty well. He doesn't manage to capture Valerian, but he takes back some land and wins the odd battle here and there and he's kind of becomes a bit of a big dog in the east and becomes really powerful and is kind of seen as like an informal governor of you know the eastern parts of of the roman empire in mid third century but then he dies and Zenobia thinks well i'm not gonna not gonna let this slide so she has a son called vabalathus bit of a tongue twister that one isn't it yeah and he's only a little kid but the gist is Zenobia uses him and tries to say oh, he's the king, but really she's the kind of the one behind the scenes pulling the strings, and she kind of rules as a queen or an empress. Well, I think she she proclaims herself Augusta, doesn't she? Yeah. Point. So or- originally she insists she you know maintains just loyalty to to um, Aurelian in in the west in the middle of the empire, but as time goes by, she gets a bit bit more confident than yeah starts declaring yeah essentially and then Aurelian eventually comes along and just steamrolls her um I'm sure we must touch upon him on another episode one day um but yeah so back to the Zenobia although she only had her kind of uh well it was only about a five-year period when she was ruling but she was a pretty cool girl so she she was pretty smart similar to Aspasia she fostered this kind of multicultural court with lots of philosophers and she protected religious minorities and engaged with them on theological discussions and well the sources because it's the third century the sources are a bit dodgy so the, the one of the best ones we have is this source called the Historia Augusta which is not a reliable source to go on which is not it's not it's just saying a lot because it's not reliable at all we don't even know who wrote it it's supposedly written by six people but I think that's that's just dismissed now and they think it's all their names are given in inverted column, yeah. commas, aren't they? So, so we don't we don't really know. And actually, I found this chart which has an estimate of the the percentage of reliable historical details in each life of each emperor. So it it, it goes through several emperors in the time period of the third century, um, and just gives biographies, and the most accurate life we have by percentage, is about a guy called Opelius Macrinus, of which, well, okay, guess how much, what what percentage of his life do you think modern historians reckon is actually accurate? 40%. It's even less, 33%. Ooh, not a million miles off. Only a third of that guy's uh, account is deemed to be reliable and, he's the and historically accurate. And historical Augusta. It's a crap source, isn't it? Yeah. Aurelian, who's the guy whose life we take our stuff from because he was the contemporary with 
So no, it's actually not too bad. He's at 27%. But there are some shocking <laughs> figures. Alexander Severus is a mere 4% historically accurate. Getter and Deodumenianus are 5%. There's a little bit on the Quadrigide Tyrannorum, so these four tyrants, and the, it, this chart says 0% accurate. <laughs> no. So it's completely, complete nonsense. But yeah, so it's a bit devious, but it's it's sad that it's the one of the best we have. There are some other guys called, there's this other guy called Zosimus, who's much later on. There's some, some actually Arabic historians, the most famous is a guy called Al-Tabari, but he's not until the, the 9th century AD, so this is, what, 700 years later, so it's a bit bit late. So we don't really know a lot about her, especially early on in life. I mean, we don't think... She's not a commoner, but she's she wasn't particularly known before she married this guy called Odenathus. Funnily enough, the Historia Augusta claims she is descended from Cleopatra, which is probably not true, let's face it, but... It's no surprise that a link is she, made. Yeah, she'd certainly try and claim that. Yeah, Cleopatra obviously is a pretty famous figure yeah. in the Roman world who we will discuss very soon. And their situations are somewhat similar to kind of married or, you know, had an affair with a Roman, a guy who's deemed Roman, a bit of a hero, but then loses out in the civil war and eventually meets meets her end. It's, it's questionable whether Zenobia actually tried to propagate this because it could have been useful, because, you know, Cleopatra's a powerful woman, especially in the East, it would have been more acceptable, but at the same time, Roman authors could have used it as slander, and said, she's just a Oriental woman who doesn't know her place, blah, 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 uh, waiting for an Augustus to come steamer her, and that's Aurelian. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit tough to know. I mean, to be honest, one of the best sources we have is Edward Gibbon who's obviously not not even a real source but he has he has some he has some pretty good things to say which I think draws on some of the stuff from the um Historia Augusta so well Gibbon says that according to the Augustan Augustan Historia she disdained sexual intercourse and only allowed her husband into her bed for conception Gibbon wrote that Zenobia surpassed Cleopatra in chastity and valor I don't know whether that's supposed to be an achievement or not given well the reputation Cleopatra has but still and he he, Gibbon wrote that Zenobia is perhaps the only female whose superior genius broke through the servile indolence opposed on her sex by the climate and manners of Asia so yeah she claimed her descent from Cleopatra she was esteemed the most lovely as well as the most heroic of her sex Mm. of dark complexion teeth were of pearly whiteness she had a understanding of latin greek syriac and egyptian nice and she was pretty well versed in homer and plato apparently excellent so she's yeah she's she's pretty smart multilingual which i think many people do admit that was pretty helpful in running the east because the east was pretty multicultural when you've got especially when you've got christianities on the rise and greek being spoken roman Syriac, yeah. So I think she she had a lot of skills that were necessary. There there are also stories about her when she was a young girl. The, the historian also says she used to like wrestle with the boys when she was a young girl, supposedly kind of guarding her own chastity. And it's because her kind of her sex poses this dilemma, right, for Romans who are in support of Aurelian, because before they wanted to on her rise to power before Aurelian takes charge they want to portray her as weak and feminine because the previous guy um who was in charge i think it's gallienus was a bit of a uh, he's not just a bad emperor and they're kind of trying to show up that he's really bad by letting a woman become really powerful but then as soon as aurelian comes to play then they want to make her seem more masculine because it would seem more impressive right if aurelian then defeats her whereas if they've spent this time yeah. saying oh she's a woman she shouldn't be here anyway then surely it's not it's not difficult for Aurelian to come and restore the world in the East. So there's kind of a switch as soon as you get to Aurelian's life that she all of a sudden gets more of a mention and is acknowledged as as being more impressive. And so they they start saying she had a clear and manly voice. She dressed as an emperor rather than empress, rode on horseback. She was attended by eunuchs even instead of ladies in waiting. Um, marched with her army, drank with the generals, and yeah, and pursued hobbies like hunting, which was a masculine domain. So, yeah, obviously there's a bit of a switch there, and we don't know how much of it is true and how much of it is just propaganda, but she seems to be certainly competent and has a good understanding of what's required to be successful. But 
yeah, sadly it's not enough. Obviously, if you couldn't tell, Aurelian comes over to the east. He he ascends the throne in 270, and he defeats her in two battles. So he wins the Battle of Imai near Antioch, and then he wins the Battle of Emesa. Supposedly, Zenobia had a master force of 70,000 men, with another 60,000 in reserve. And Aurelian didn't have anywhere near that, but still, still carried the day. And then... Did Zenobia... Did she lead the troops? Did she fight in the battle? Well, that's... Yeah, the, well, the historian Augustus says she marched with her army and drank with her generals, but I don't know whether she would have actually done the, the commanding and issuing of the orders. Mm. It's something that doesn't, doesn't really come up. I don't think anyone would believe she's on horseback charging into the fray in, in the way that some, some generals do. But, um, yeah, she was certainly... I think she was, she was there. And then in the aftermath of these two defeats, she flees back to Palmyra and Aurelian comes up, besieges it, and she tries to escape and run off east. But upon hearing this, Aurelian sends some scouts to go and arrest her and they find her trying to flee. And he arrests her. And he, well, we don't actually know particularly how she met her end because he didn't execute her or anything. No. She might have marched in his triumph. Yeah. So this is We don't know. Some circulate that she died on the march back to Rome. But I think most people seem to think that she was brought back to Rome and might have been marched in triumph and then just kind of lived under house arrest for the, until, you know, until she died soon after. Yeah, I'm sure I read somewhere she ended up in a nice villa yeah. somewhere in Italy. Yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not really sure. There was no way she was going to pose a threat to Aurelian after being carried right. away from Rome. Because, you, know, you know, she's lost her power base. There's no way she's going to pose a threat far away from a, from a native zone of influence. What happened to the son? Do we know? The son, I think he was just carried on with her. I don't think he was executed either. I think he oh, might okay. have been put in the triumph too. But again, he's not a threat because he's just some oriental minor king. And he was also very, very young. Like he yeah, was I mean, literally like throughout eight. her whole reign, he must have been yeah. really young. He, he didn't, you know, this, he wasn't even a teenager at the yeah. start he was prepubescent so he wasn't really posing a threat and most of it was Zenobia's machinations of trying to wield some influence it's difficult to evaluate her legacy given well the lack of sources and well and given she was only only really took charge for a short period of five years but she's become a semi-mythic figure throughout the ages she's kind of seen as you know a female role model to queens throughout the ages so Apparently that the Russian monarch Catherine the Great liked to compare herself to Zenobia because she was militarily powerful and also had a you know a strong intellectual atmosphere at her court. Also during the nineteen thirties, thanks to an Egyptian-based feminist magazine, she became an icon for women's magazine readers in the Arabic world and particularly in Syria, obviously, which is where her home city of Palmyra is. Um, she's seen as kind of a pre-Islamic national hero. Because of the influence of Islam, I don't know how strong that is, but um, I think she's certainly, given there's so few candidates of women in antiquity, she's got to be the, she's the number be one. the local hero. That, yeah, exactly. She's a pretty romantic figure. Lots of people have written novels or plays about her and her end. It's the kind of the perfect setting for it. You can imagine like a, yeah, can. a Shakespearean set. Like in the same way that you have Antony and Cleopatra, you can imagine Zenobia and Fabalathus or... Odenathus, whatever. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty hard on the whole to form an uh, opinion because of the lack of reliable mm. info, which is a shame, but she does seem pretty impressive. I think she had a pretty good run. Yeah, obviously it was only a short period of time, you know. I mean, in the context of the third century crisis, five years is actually quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Emperors, emperors lasted long, uh, less than that, yeah. so... And, yeah, and she was, did, was, she, like... It's still a short amount of time, but she still conquered quite a lot. Like, she controlled Egypt, yeah. which Rome was reliant on for the court. And then I think she she tried to make headway into, well, modern Turkey, but that was at the same time that Aurelian came marching east and realised this was a bit of a crisis, and then just promptly got beaten back all the way to Palmyra. Yeah. And then once Aurelian had dealt with her, he marched west to face Tetricus and the, the Gallic Empire in the west. And then before long, he'd... He'd restored the world, the restitutor orbis, as they called him. But yeah, I think it's credit to her that Aurelian's this guy who, well, he's just, he's so cool. He's so impressive. And she was, you know, it took such a good, impressive emperor as Aurelian to knock her down. 
yeah. and defeat her. But it says a lot about how competent she was. Yeah, she certainly sees the opportunity because saw all the carnage of the third, yeah. third century crisis and thought, yeah, let's have a go. Well, chaos is a ladder, isn't it? So <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, Indeed. I think. But it's also notable that um, there weren't any actual internal revolts that we know of within, within the East. None of them were particularly fussed about. Yeah, surprising, isn't it, her. I suppose, that they'd yeah. so readily accept her as a, an Augusta. And obviously... You you might say that oh well it's because she's technically ruling in the name of her son but I think I most think people it must have been obvious that clock she on that when yeah. she announced that she was an Augusta yeah so especially yeah by Empire. the end she wasn't even she wasn't even playing the um the game she was just outright I'm I'm the one in charge and no one really seemed to bother and it shows in you know how big an army she was able to amass so on the whole she did pretty good I do have one little well very contemporary tangent to go on oh, i'd love to, to hear palmyra so i'm sure you've heard of the islamic state of iraq and syria yes busy blowing up all the monuments are they yeah so unfortunately in 2015 they um took over palmyra and they blew up lots of temples and palmyra is amazing you can see pictures online it's it's like a whole it's not just one big building it's this whole kind of city complex that's it's not intact because it's in ruins but there are plenty of plenty of impressive amphitheatres and temples and everything but um isis did their best to kind of ruin the fun for all of us so they blew up most the biggest thing they blew up was the temple of bell who was an ancient eastern god but um modern archaeologists say that about 20 to 30 percent of it was damaged but i don't really know what they mean by this they they said that using both traditional methods and advanced texts it might be possible to restore 98 percent of this which is pretty promising but I don't know. It's not going to be the same. That's my kind of inclination. It's going to be whitewashed and a bit too modernised. But I imagine that will also take quite a while until the region yes, stabilises. Will, yes, so. exactly. I, I wouldn't, as an archaeologist, want to get in there. Not that um, we'd be able to right go and now. visit it before no. it happens anyway. So we'll just wait for it all to blow yeah. over. But another reason why, you, as an archaeologist, you wouldn't want to go there is because of what they did to an archaeologist who... I basically just want to give a shout out to this guy called Khaled Al Assad. He was the head of antiquities uh, at Palmyra. He held this position for over forty years, and he was born in Palmyra in nineteen thirty-two. He spent literally his whole life there. He briefly went to the university at Damascus, where he studied history. He had six sons and five daughters, and as I said at the start, one of them he named Zenobia, nice, um, because of his his love of Palmyra and the ancient world. He was fluent in Aramaic and regularly translated ancient texts. And kind of when ISIS took over, he helped some people escape but got captured. And they tortured him to try and find out where all the best artifacts were held, but he refused to um to give them up. And sadly, they publicly beheaded him in the amphitheatre at the age of 83. So, yeah, basically, shout out to Khaled, bit of a hero. Yeah, that is some admirable... Devotion to yeah. to classics, yeah, real real commitment. But um, thankfully, ISIS have been kicked out of Palmyra now, so there is hope. Um, hopefully, in in Khaled's memory, we can all those archaeologists can restore it and bring it Let's back to what it was and how he would have wanted it. It's it's a pretty pretty sad end, but kudos to him for not not giving in to that band of well terrorists. Yeah, a morbid end, but. I thought I'd, it would be remiss of me not to mention him. No, um, of he deserves a lot more, lot more attention than he gets. And he named one of his daughters Zenobia. Yeah, so. well, that's just brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I would consider naming a daughter Zenobia. <laughs> <laughs> well, may, maybe a middle name at least. A middle name. Not tempted with Aspasia? Or... I, I think out of the four that we've looked at, I think Zenobia is the most kick-ass. Yeah, I mean, in the way that she was able to properly rule into, in her own right. Yeah, I mean, she just sort of seized that opportunity and engineered yeah. everything that she did off her own bat, really. So. Yeah, she went out with a with a blaze. I think Aspasia, to be fair to her, is pretty cool in the sense that I'd never heard of her before, and she seems like a pretty fun girl to be around, whereas the others are all very much political. Yes. And yeah. perhaps owe a lot of their positions to their husbands. And yeah, Aspasia, you could say the same with Pericles, but she didn't seem to pursue politics as much as the others yeah and i think the situation in athens would have been the most conservative out of 
all the, yeah, the circumstances we'd come across. So, mm. yeah, a bunch of pretty cool women, I'd say. Unfortunately, most women in the ancient world didn't have the opportunity to throw their weight around in politics or properly get to grips with philosophy and literature and education. Um, so these four we've looked at are relatively unique in that sense. Uh, you do get a few more from the nobility. You know, you've got all your other Agrippinas and yeah, well, Livia the too. imperial, ho- yeah, the imperial household yeah. in Rome and uh, a few other. A few others crop up in the Greek world and Hellenistic worlds, but yeah, unfortunately they didn't. Well, they just had a pretty poor lot in general, women yeah. in antiquity. So glad to say that that is one of the things that uh, humanity has moved on from quite a long way. And we'll be talking about Cleopatra and Boudicca soon enough. So don't 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 get worried that we've missed them out. We're, yeah. yeah. Yes, we have yeah. more epic women to come. Well, until next time then. Sawete. <laughs> it's ballet. <Yeah. laughs> we always <laughs> try and say hello at the end of it. Oh. We need to yeah. make sure we get that right. I will bid you ballet. Ballet.